I want to give everyone uh, just a couple minutes before we get into the word. I wanted to cover just a little family business really quick, give everyone an update, some exciting things. Um, heard from Fruit Group. That's the company that is helping us uh, locate and place our family pastor role that we're looking to fill. I uh, just talked with them last week, and this Tuesday we will have a meeting with them Tuesday afternoon from noon on, however long it takes, and it's probably going to be like four or five hours of them presenting six candidates to us on who they believe could be good fits for our church family. So um, I say all that to say, would you commit, as our church family, uh, and the implications of this decision, please be praying for us on Tuesday afternoon. If you think of it, set a reminder in your phone or something like that. And of course, not only Tuesday afternoon, but in the weeks and months following as there's this initial presentation meeting on Tuesday, and then beyond that, we'll have interviews and phone conversations and all sorts of things to navigate. And if we navigate it in our own strength and in our own wisdom, we could miss it. And so we want to depend on the Lord. We want to trust in Him and, and uh, be fully confident in His ability to lead us and guide us into um, who they want or who he wants to fill that role for our church family. And then beyond that, would you also be praying that right now, Lord, God would prepare the right person, get them ready to join our church family, and also prepare our church family. I remember November 6th, 2012, was the day I moved up to wonderful Wisconsin from Texas. And November 7th, the next day, Dave and Kelly Vroom in our church, wonderful couple, had me over to their house for dinner. And I am just hoping and praying that our church family can show the same hospitality, the same welcome, the same love, the same care, uh, the same celebration, the same championing, the same passion uh, to each and every person that God brings to our team. So church, can I uh, get an amen on those two fronts of praying and supporting? Amen. We want them to know that we love and, and believe in them and support them. Um, next, beyond that, another thing I want to talk to you about quickly is, as you heard in the announcement video, and of course last week we brought Jamie and her family up with the fact that Jay has received a new job in Nashville and them uh, leaving our church family to move to Tennessee. Um, of course, those two jobs that Jamie has been filling uh, part-time. Uh, if you feel like the Lord's leading you to apply for those, awesome. Do so prayerfully. And here's my one disclaimer. If you are going to apply for one of those two jobs, only do so if you are capable of guarding your heart in case the answer is no. And here's the reason I say that. The chances are there's going to be several people applying for these two jobs, these two roles, and only one person can fulfill each job, which means there will be people who get no as the answer. There are people who will be disappointed. And so I say all that to say, if, if, if you're going to apply, make sure before you apply, make sure that you pray and, and lay it before the Lord and say, God, if you want me to have this role, I lay it before you and I trust you with it. And if the answer is no, then I trust that you're protecting me from something that I wanted that you didn't have for me. That was my prayer throughout the whole season of the transition that we walked through with lead pastor. I kept saying, Lord, if, if this is what you want, then bring it to pass. And if it's not, Lord, help me be okay with that you're protecting me from something that I want that you 
you didn't want for me. I wanted to be your lead pastor, and, and thankfully that has come to pass. Um, and so, but all of that to say, we want to make sure that everyone guards their heart because the most people that could get a yes is two, and there's probably going to be more than two people that apply. All right, so let's guard our hearts there and be prayerful as we navigate these changes in our church family. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, we need you. Uh, we need you at all times. But if we're going to read your word and, and discuss your word, uh, we need your Holy Spirit to guide the conversation. We need your Holy Spirit to give us illumination. We need your Holy Spirit um, at all times. God, I ask that you would help me speak um, the truth today. I ask that you would help us hear the truth and receive the truth and walk out the truth for the good of your people and the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, and everyone says, amen. We are in week nine of the book of Ephesians, which I have personally loved walking through with our church family. Today is the last message in the book of Ephesians for us, and it has been wonderful to see the first three chapters that Paul is delivering all of this beautiful and profound and <laughs> just huge theology and doctrine and knowledge and truth about God that then set up and rolled into the next three chapters, chapters four through six, which are the practical implications of that theology on our daily lives. Chapters one through three, here's truth about God. Chapters four through six, here's what it looks like for your life daily as you walk in light of these truths about God. And today we will be in chapter six as we begin concluding. We're going to talk about a hidden enemy. And chapter six is going to have us talking about spiritual warfare. Now, before we begin talking about spiritual warfare and get too deep reading today, I want to dispel some misconceptions about spiritual warfare, some popular misconceptions that I hear often or see that a lot of people think about spiritual warfare um, because I, I hear Inigo Montoya in my mind saying, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And I think very often I've heard people say things or react to things and call it spiritual warfare when sometimes I don't think it's quite spiritual warfare or seeing spiritual warfare as just this one facet of a much larger dynamic that entails spiritual warfare. So a few things that spiritual warfare is not. Spiritual warfare is not some cosmic battle, some power struggle between God and Satan. There is no power struggle. The power is present with God and Satan is subject. There is no power that Satan has that is above God. There is no power that Satan has that is even remotely close to God's power. In fact, Satan is powerful, but the power that he has pales in comparison. And in fact, all the things that Satan and his demonic forces are doing in this world today are only by God stepping back and going, go ahead and do your thing right now because what you don't realize is that you're actually in your destruction and in your temptation and in your attacks, you're actually even setting up for me to do my good. For example, scripture teaches us that if Satan knew what he was doing, he would not have crucified the son of glory. If he knew that he was exacting the mechanism through which redemption would become available to all of us in Jesus dying on the cross, he wouldn't have done it. He thought he was killing God. 
He thought he was thwarting God's plan by getting that man, Jesus Christ, crucified. And what he didn't realize, that he was paying the price for sin with the sacrificial lamb of Jesus Christ on the cross. And every believer says, Amen. And so Satan still to this day is out and about and he's working and he's working in many different ways. But that is not to mean that there is some power struggle. Jesus Christ is king forever and he will always be king and Satan is subject and his time is limited. So spiritual warfare is not that. Another thing spiritual warfare is not some battle over the weather. And I feel like this isn't as popular, but sometimes you hear, I remember when I lived in Texas and I was working at a ministry in Texas and we had this big special Christmas service. Our church had bought some land where we were going to build and we, we were going to have this special service on the land. We didn't, hadn't built yet, but we're going to have our Christmas service out there in this tent and we figured it's Texas and so December's not as much of a threat in Texas as it is in Wisconsin to an outdoor tent service. Lo and behold, the week before, every single day was rain, and even the day of the Christmas service to where it was like muddy and nasty. And I remember one of the leaders from this ministry saying, Satan, I bind and rebuke you. I command this rain to go. And I'm going, I don't think Satan controls the weather. In fact, if we look at scripture, It's pretty clear over and over there is one person who has authority over the weather, and that's God. And that's why we see that in the point of the the story of Jesus being in the boat with his disciples, asleep in the middle of a storm, with his head on a pillow, and his disciples are freaking out, saying, Jesus, don't you care that we're going to perish? Don't you care? And he goes, oh, you guys in your little faith. Okay, here we go. Peace be still. And the storm stops and the waves stop. The sea stops. It's tumulting. And when the disciples, what do they say? They say, oh, wow, Jesus, teach us how to do that. It's not what they said. They were in fear and trembling saying, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? To that point, they had already seen him heal the sick. They'd already seen him perform incredible miracles. But Jesus stands up on the front of the boat and says, peace be still, and the weather obeys. Why? He was revealing to his disciples, hey guys, guess what? I'm God. And these guys in the boat with the realization they're in the boat with God are going, whoa. Who is this man? And even the wind and the waves. So there is not some cosmic struggle whereby when there's tornadoes, it means the devil won that day. What we should do is still pray when we hear about tornadoes or we see a hurricane forming in the Gulf or anything like that's going on, absolutely we should pray and ask God to to cause that to suppress and to weaken and to not cause destruction. And we should pray for people when those things are happening but there is not some cosmic battle over the weather. That's not spiritual warfare. Another thing, spiritual warfare is not always is our temptations to sin. Now I say that the way I said it, in in that temptation to sin is not always spiritual warfare. It is that, but sometimes, as James would teach us, 
The book of James tells us that when each person sins, they are led away by their own desires. And if we read the book of Romans and the book of Galatians, you would see a whole bunch of text telling us that there is still, for the believer today, a very present struggle between the spirit and the flesh, which is why Paul says over and over in those two books that we walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. And as long as we are still on this earth until we get to glory, there was still be this struggle between our spirit inside of us, the spirit of God inside of us, and our flesh that we live in that's telling us, seek out pleasure and be lazy and stuff the face. All these things that our flesh wants and longs for that are contrary to the spirit, which is why scripture teaches us that we deny our flesh and, cru- and crucify ourselves daily, dying to ourselves daily, taking up our cross to follow Jesus because our flesh needs to be put in submission. This is one of the blessings that comes from fasting. When we recognize that our spirit Our flesh is getting strong to where it's winning the battle versus our flesh. That's a great time for us to go, you know what? I realize I probably should fast because nothing puts your flesh in its place by saying, I'm not eating. Because your body will scream at you, I want food. But when you say, no, intentionally, I am refusing what you're telling me, gurgle, 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 that you want, and through weakness, you want, I'm going to refuse and tell myself that I don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so, one, spiritual warfare is experienced in temptation to sin, but it's not only that. Sometimes we blame things on the devil that is just our flesh. I remember my, uh, a story that my parents told me about my oldest brother, Michael, when he was like two, three years old, something like that, when he was potty training. This one time, it was at the level of potty training where they weren't putting diapers on him anymore, which means there was a lot of messes to clean up. And one day he's outside playing and he comes inside doing the walk. Every parent has seen that walk. And there is the wet rainbow running down. And he said, Michael, what happened? And he said, the devil rained on me. And that's a cute toddler illustration of what I think a lot of times we do when we make our own messes. Oh, I'm about to preach. Come on, no. When we are tempted by our own desires, our own flesh, when we have not fed our spirit, we're not spiritually strong, but we are spiritually weak and our flesh is strong, then we sit here going, the devil made me do it. And sometimes it's like, no, actually, we just haven't been feeding our spirit and we are weak. This is why Jesus told the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's experiencing his greatest test, his greatest temptation, he tells his disciples, guys, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Why? Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Your spirit is willing to do righteousness. Your flesh is weak. And if you are living in the flesh rather than in the spirit by feeding your spirit through the word of God, through prayer, through godly conversations, through being taught the word of God like this, if you are only, if your one spiritual meal a week is this hour on Sunday morning, you are spiritually weak. And you are expecting to have victory over your flesh, which is stronger than you, and then an enemy, which is stronger than you. 
So this is why we gotta feed our spirit. If there's two dogs in a fight and you fed one for a week and didn't feed another but once a week and those two dogs fought, which dog's gonna fight? Which dog's gonna win the fight? The one that's been fed. And so let's be careful in spiritual warfare. A lot of times when we stumble or sin or when we're tempted, we're like, oh, devil. And sometimes it's just our flesh that we haven't put into subjection. Another thing that, that spiritual warfare is not is suffering. Now, spiritual warfare can and does happen in suffering, but suffering in and of itself is not spiritual warfare. A lot of times when people are going through stuff, when the metaphorical poop is hitting the fan, when everything in life is, is going wrong or there's this sickness or this injury or finances or whatever, everything's going wrong, people tend to go, oh, I'm just in spiritual warfare because this bad stuff's happening. <sighs> Not necessarily. The spiritual warfare can be what's happening in your heart and in your soul in the suffering. But if we went to James chapter one, we would see the apostle James telling us, hey, actually, guess what? Count it all joy when you experience various trials, various tribulations, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And when patience has had its perfect work, you be perfect Lacking nothing. So rather than seeing every bit of suffering that we experience in this life as some battle of spiritual warfare, that because I'm going through this stuff, then, then there's spirit, it's a spiritual warfare. This stuff's happening to me because the devil's my enemy. Well, James is telling us we need to count that stuff joy because it's an opportunity for our faith to grow and be tested and to be proven. In fact, if we flip over also to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter 5, 8 through 11 says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Check this out. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by their brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Think about the famous Old Testament book of Job. There was a man named Job who was righteous before God, a faithful servant, and Satan comes before God and God says, man, have you considered my servant Job? He is a righteous man. There's none like him in the land. Satan says to God, well, well, of course he's righteous. Of course he's faithful to you. You've placed this hedge of protection around him where you won't let me harm him. But if you let me, if you let me touch him, he'll curse you. God says, all right, go ahead. Destroy his stuff. We don't like to hear that. We don't like to read that part of the Bible. And Satan goes and destroys his property, his family. And Job is weeping and mourning, but he didn't curse God. In fact, he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He says, I came into this world naked. I'll leave it naked. And he continues to praise God. In fact, his wife goes on to say, Job, look at what's happening. You should just curse God and die. He's like, nope. Should we only receive good things from the Lord is what Job says. And so then we see he continues faithfully. He continues to stay humble and faithful before the Lord. There is a point where he begins to question and challenge God. And then God says, hike your britches up, boy, because I'm about to talk to you like a man. And then God challenges him and reminds him, were you there 
when I made the mountains? Were you there when I told the lightning to, where to strike? Were you there when I told the sea where to stop? You weren't there, bud. Remember, I'm God, okay? And Job repents, and, and then God restores to him everything he had lost and even more. But that was a test that was permitted by God to prove Job's faithfulness to the Lord. And so, are those things happening? It was Satan who, who was doing those things to Job. But the spiritual warfare wasn't in that the things were happening to Job. The spiritual warfare was in what's happening in Job's heart. Is he going to stay faithful to God in the suffering? So suffering in and of itself is not alone spiritual warfare. And finally, another thing that is not exclusively spiritual warfare, it's one avenue of spiritual warfare, but we have, some people have ideas of spiritual warfare is, is just when demons are manifesting and you're casting out demons. And although that is spiritual warfare, that's not the only picture of spiritual warfare. And the reason I put emphasis on that is because, especially in America where we see a lot less of that, I know if we talked to Vivek, we would hear some more stories about how some of that stuff happens in India, where there's a lot more uh, invitation of those spirits and a lot more of demonic oppression over there. But what we run the risk of is going, oh yeah, that stuff happens in India, and so we don't experience the same spiritual warfare here in America that they do, and we let our guard down, and we foolishly are not prepared for the ways that the enemy attacks us that are different than that. We think, oh, people aren't rolling around and writhing in demonic possession, so we're not in wartime over here. We're in peacetime. And we leave our weapons in their cases. And we leave our gear on the hooks. And Satan loves it. If we think that spiritual warfare is not happening day to day, moment by moment in the nuances of our life that feels comfortable and nice and not demonic feeling, we're like, oh, we're good. And we're not on guard. We're not alert. We're not paying attention to the ways that Satan would come against us and would attack us. Now, I would read this whole passage from Luke 10, but I learned in first service that made me take way too long in that passage. So I'm just going to summarize it for you. But in Luke chapter 10, there's a point where Jesus sends out 72 disciples he says, guys, go out in my authority. All authority I have, I give to you. Go out. The fields are white for the harvest. Harvest. The, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Pray earnestly that the Lord would send out workers into the field to reap the harvest. Now go. And when you go, do this and this and this and this. And if they receive you, rejoice and preach and share in life with them. And if they reject you, then wash your hands of them, essentially, is what Jesus tells them. And they go. And they preach. And then they come back later in Luke chapter 10. And the 72 come back to Jesus. And what do they say? They say, Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. This is amazing. And it's right to be excited about that. Of course, if we saw that and experienced, we'd be excited. But what does Jesus say? He says, well, you know what? I saw Satan fall to the earth like lightning. And all authority has been given to me and I give it to you and you can trample on serpents and scorpions and nothing shall by any means harm you. And then he says this, but don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
Notice, Jesus sends them out on gospel work. Jesus sends them out to preach the gospel, to declare the kingdom of God and invite people into the kingdom of God. In the, in the path and in the process, they encounter sick people and they heal them. They see demoniacs and they cast those demons out. And they're, they're like, oh my gosh, can you believe that? Look, this is amazing. And they go back. <laughs> Excuse me. That's not spiritual warfare, Okay. And so they go back, they're excited, they're all jazzed, and rightly so. But Jesus says, Jesus is careful, careful. That's good, but if there's going to be rejoicing, it's not over that. The rejoicing is over the fact that you belong to Jesus. Don't put the cart before the horse. Don't get this thing twisted. And I'm telling you guys, the reason that I'm even highlighting this and the reason I think Jesus highlighted this is because it's very easy, very popular. And there are some really popular ministries nowadays that, that preach some truth, but also put what I believe is an improper emphasis on the miracles as if that's the goal and as if that's the gospel. And the gospel is about the reconciliation of sinners to Jesus Christ. So that is what is the primary drive of rejoicing. Of course, we, we, we want to celebrate and rejoice when we see people set free and when we see people healed. And we, we want to pray for that. We long to see that. We want to be used by God for that. But Jesus is saying, hey, let's get this vision right back on where it really belongs, which is the reconciled relationship to God. If you're going to rejoice, man, rejoice over what is ultimate, that your name's written in heaven. If you're going to rejoice, rejoice about the fact that you, sinner, were reconciled to the holy God. If you're going to rejoice, rejoice over the fact that Jesus Christ has paid for your sins and brought you back into the family and then commissioned you to be about the Lord's work. Y'all better not clap because you're going to get me preaching longer, okay? All of that to say, what is the greatest fear of our enemy? What is the greatest fear of our enemy in this spiritual war that's going on? His greatest fear is his ultimate demise. He knows it's coming. He knows what's written. We see that he tried to tempt Jesus to sin by quoting scripture out of context. Shows us he knows scripture also, it ought to make us go, ah, I need to be really careful about how, how I handle Scripture and what Scripture I, I listen the way that I hear people because there's plenty of people who mishandle Scripture. And Satan mishandled Scripture to try and get Jesus to sin. So, that's noteworthy. But Jesus shows us there, through the Word of God, that Satan knows the Word of God, so we also know that Satan knows his end. He knows that his destruction is coming. We can also see in Matthew chapter 24 where Jesus said, then this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout all the world and then the end will come. And so Satan knows his end is gonna come after all nations have heard. Guys, did you know that right now 90% of missions funding is going to countries where the gospel is already preached? 10% of missions funding is going to unreached people groups. I think that's something we should pray about and we should evaluate. Of course, we want to continue to send the gospel where it is, but I think we should also go, man, where can we support? Where can we send where they're not being sent? Anyways, Satan doesn't want the gospel to continue to go forth, 
because he wants to stave off his destruction as long as he can. And secondly, he, of course, wants to bring as many people into his misery company as he can. So, this spiritual warfare is not a game of thrones, wrestling match between God and Satan. It is a game of souls. Yeah, that's a play on words. And no, I haven't watched Game of Thrones, and I'm not going to because Katie and I have a pretty strong rule that we don't watch things that have nudity because of spiritual warfare. There's not some cosmic battle between God and Satan. There is absolutely no room in Scripture for the idea that God and, Sa God and Satan are at war for who really will rule and who has absolute authority and who will, give, uh, who will emerge victorious in conquering the other. Hear me loud and clear. Satan has already been defeated by Jesus Christ. And everything that's unfolding in our world and we're like, oh, spiritual warfare. Look at what's happening in this country and this leader and this government and all that. Oh, spiritual warfare. Listen, God's plan is going to happen. It will happen. And we get to play a part and we want to pray and we want to say, yeah, let your kingdom come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, is the prayer of the believer whose hope is in eternity. And if your hope is in this life here and now, you're going to be living in fear all the time, anxiety all the time, turmoil all the time. But if you place your hope in eternity with Christ and where, where you're hungrily saying, yes, come quickly, Lord Jesus, let your kingdom come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I remember when I was a kid thinking, oh, I don't want God to come back yet. I don't want Jesus' second coming to come back yet because I haven't been married and I haven't done this yet and I haven't experienced this and I haven't achieved that. What a foolish, naive perspective. The believer's heart ought to be the reconciliation and restoration of all things where we get to see Jesus Christ on the throne ruling and reigning in majesty and in glory and there is no sin, there is no pain, there is no suffering. Yesterday, we went to a service for our cousin, 31, who passed away from breast cancer. There's a day coming where there's not that pain anymore. And the war is over souls, not just over that momentary suffering. In fact, Paul says that this light and momentary affliction is working for you an exceedingly greater weight of glory. Our hope should not be here, and now our hope should be there. And we are at war, not for our comforts, not at war for our life's conveniences, not at, at war for our pleasures and our achievements. We are at war for souls, our own and the souls of others. Someone say amen. And if we are in a spiritual war, we must use spiritual weapons. I remember when I was a teenager in high school, when I had just started getting into paintball, and I haven't played paintball in a long time, but back when I used to be in paintball, um, it's expensive to play paintball, and I was just starting to get into it, so I went to Walmart and bought a Talon Raptor, which, if you didn't know, is a little single-pump, single-shot paintball gun with a CO2 cartridge that holds, like, 24 rounds of paintballs, and I'm going out to play with all these guys, and I get out there, and I'm like, yeah, I feel like I'm pretty, like, I'll be good at this. And I get out there, and there's guys out there who have spiders and tipmans, these really good paintball guns that are all semi-automatic that can throw hundreds at you in a minute. And I'm sitting there with my one pump, one shot, and I'm like, oh yeah, here we go. Steven's a bad man. And I try and get one shot off, and I've got like 50 on me like that. I learned really quick, one of these things is just not like the other. 
And even after that, I bought a better paintball gun. I had one that was semi-automatic and I could, bop, 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 bop. all right, I'm going to go out there now and I'm going to show them what I can do. And then one day a guy showed up with what was called an angel autococker. If you don't know paintball, that's a fully automatic, like hundreds of rounds in a minute, like rain. And I remember I'm like, oh yeah, baby. Oh wow, one of these things is not like the other again. And I think sometimes we navigate spiritual warfare like that. I'm pretty strong. I'm pretty. I know. I'm good. And oh, snap. How did that happen? How did I stop? How did this? And this is where we're going to see Paul speak to this in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. He says this. Finally, be strong in what? In the Lord and in the strength of his might. What would that look like in that paintball field? I think it would look like me having my little one-shot, single-shot pump, but I've got like 20 guys with angel autocockers behind me where I'm coming out and going, I'm going to run up and get the flag because all the power that's behind me. Not in our own strength, not in our own power. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. One of the most common mistakes the Christian makes, oh, that rhymes, so it has to be good, is depending on their own strength. It's feeling like I've got this, rather than depending on the Lord and expressing that dependence through feeding ourselves the word of God and expressing that dependence by prayer and supplication, seeking the Lord, calling out to the Lord, saying, Lord, help me, Lord, I need you every day, every moment. The problem is we only think we need the Lord when it feels like spiritual warfare. And Satan would love for you to go through your life day to day, to go through your routine, get the ready for, kids ready for school, get breakfast, get them set, go to work, do whatever your daily routine is. He would love for you to do all that and never feel like warfare is happening. Because you have your guard down, you won't be prayerful, you won't be depending on the Lord, acknowledging him in all your ways, trusting him to direct your path. You won't be alert, sober-minded, vigilant, aware of what could be happening in my life today, waging war for my soul and the souls of others. Satan loves the idea that there's nothing happening in the life of a Christian that's worthy of prayer, worthy of seeking the Lord, worthy of being guarded and ready for battle. One of the most common mistakes that the Christian makes is depending on their own strength. As we continue reading, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. You should circle, highlight, underline that word if you do that because it multiple times is in this passage. Stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Another way that we wage war in the spirit is by remembering people are not our enemy. We have an enemy, but it is not flesh and blood. So when that unbeliever is coming at you and attacking you and opposing you and accusing you, remember they are not the enemy. They are a prisoner of the enemy. Do you remember in the same book of Ephesians in chapter two when it said the whole bit about how we used to be dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of 
of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all walked, filling the passions of our flesh and the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Remembering that these, all of us at once were prisoners of war, and if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are no longer a prisoner of war. You've been set free and brought into the battle on the other side, recognizing that other people who don't know the Lord, who are uh, mocking you and persecuting you and making things hard for you because you're a Christian, that listen, they are not the enemy. What we ought not be doing is going, oh, that evil so-and-so, I can't believe how wicked. What we ought to be doing is, oh man, God, I pray for their soul. God, would you save them? God, would you open their eyes? God, would you bring them to repentance? God, would you use me in their life? See, when we see those people as enemies, we just want to avoid them. We want to get away from them. But when we see them as prisoners of war and we, we see ourselves as soldiers in God's army, how cliche and childish is this, but it's true. When we see ourselves as warriors in God's army and we see these people in our lives, we're not in their lives anymore to just go, ugh, but we're there to go, man, what, God, would you use me somehow? God, can I plant the seed God, can I water a seed that's already been planted, trusting that you're going to give harvest, you're going to give the increase when it pleases you? God, when I see that politician that I think is just evil and ungodly and unwicked, what if I stopped just bad-mouthing him and instead prayed for him? Let's think for a minute. What if every minute we spent posting on social about how evil these politicians are, what if that time spent posting was spent praying for them instead? I'm going to look this way because, and no, there is not a single one of you who's motivating me to say that, okay? Don't even go there. It's easy enough in our day to know there's lots of people doing it. And I'm not saying it's sinful for you to do that, but what, what, what's the goal? What's the goal? Do we want to make a difference? And if your goal is really to make a difference, wouldn't it be better spent energy laying that before the Lord? Wouldn't that be better spent energy petitioning the Lord for those things? Ouch. It got so quiet in here. <laughs> Amen or oh me, I guess. They're not the enemy. They're subject to the enemy. They're prisoners, dead to sin, just like we once were. And what we should be doing is waging war for their soul. Yeah, we should be praying that God would help righteousness raise in our nation. Yes, absolutely, we should 100% be praying that God would help us be involved and engaged at the right points and at the right levels, and we should stand for what we believe in. Absolutely, absolutely. But I wonder what would happen if all the energy spent on posting was spent on praying, bringing it before the God who can actually change the heart that the post cannot change. Like I know all of us right here hold the views and beliefs that we have because someone posted on Facebook once. <laughs> Probably not. And I know all of us have had our views changed by something we saw online one time, right? Probably not. I'm not, tell I'm not telling you how to manage your social. I'm just trying to help you reset your perspective on what's gonna make a difference. 
you really want to make a difference in these areas, put it before the Lord. I didn't even go here in first service, so I guess the Lord might be up to something, or maybe I just got on a kick. Who knows? Either way, there it went. Ephesians chapter 6, let's pick back up. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand, therefore, stand, therefore, having done all to stand, stand. See, the great assignment of the Christian warrior is to be able to stand. The great assignment of the Christian warrior is to stand against the pressures, against the voices, against the influences, to stand. Stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth. And here, Paul is about to go into this metaphorical communication, so to speak, this figurative image of the armor of God. And I remember in my life growing up, hearing the armor of God taught as this thing that we put on in the morning. Like, all right, when you wake up in the morning, you say, all right, today, Lord, I put on the armor of God. I put on the belt of truth, and I put on the breastplate of light, righteousness, and I put on my, the, the, my feet are ready with the gospel of peace, and I take up the shield of faith, and I've got the helmet of salvation, and I've got the sword of the spirit. I've got my armor on. Okay, now back about my day. As if it was this mystical, spiritual thing that we just did transaction one time in the morning and since we did that all right I've got the armor on and I'm ready for the day and I never have to think about it again because I'm guarded and I don't think that's what Paul is saying here I think Paul is more so saying through figurative language hey these are the things the tools the resources the armor that you need to be employing throughout the day not that, all right, I did this thing in the morning and now I've got my armor on. No, you need to have that belt of truth on all day, meaning you've got to be ready with the truth throughout the day. This breastplate of righteousness, meaning I didn't just put on that thing that one time and now I don't think about it, but I walk and live and move forward, guarded as a being, my vital organs with that breastplate, so to speak, that my vitals are guarded with the fact that my righteousness is in God through Christ Jesus. I don't have my own righteousness. I'm not fighting under my own banner. I belong to God and it's his righteousness in which I bear daily, minute by minute, moment by moment, decision by decision, I have this filter of God's righteousness. My feet being shod with the readiness of the gospel of peace that I daily, moment by moment, step by step, am ready with the good news, the gospel of peace with God through Jesus Christ. That throughout the day, I didn't just put it on in the morning, but every step, I've got the gospel with me ready to share, hey, you can have peace with God. That as I go throughout my day, I'm not, didn't just put on my shield of faith, but I have faith in God with me everywhere I go, no matter what comes my way, I'm ready with my faith in God to quench whatever attack the enemy would bring against me. This helmet of salvation, I didn't just 
put that on one time. But as Romans 12 teaches us, that we're not transformed to this world, but we're, or we're not conformed to this world, but we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Our, our salvation, this helmet of salvation is, I'm placing my thoughts, my mind, my sights on eternity with Christ. This sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the same weapon that Jesus wielded again when he was tempted by Satan. That moment, that picture, that story of significant spiritual warfare where Satan comes to him and tempts him three times. And three times, what weapon did Jesus use against Satan? Three words. It is written. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. These are not things that we just go, okay, God, I put them on and now I'm gonna go about my day. This is a constant awareness throughout our day that I need to be clinging to the truth, that I need to be standing in the righteousness of God moment by moment, that I need to be going out in my life ready with the gospel of peace, that moment by moment, I need my faith in God. Moment by moment, I'm gonna keep my mind set on the fact that I have been saved by grace through faith and my hope is in eternity with the Lord. I need to go out ready with my faith and ready with the word of God so that like Jesus, I can wage war by saying it is written. And then finally, after Paul finishes this armor presentation, he goes into one more thing that is absolutely key in spiritual warfare. Verse 15, or I'm sorry, Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Verse 18, praying at all times. Praying at all times. Praying in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And then the last two verses are Paul giving his final greetings to the Ephesians and giving the same commission and charge that he gives in every letter saying, the grace and peace of God be with you. That is the gospel that he opens every letter with and he closes every letter with. Praying at all times. See, prayer is not going to be utilized by the person who thinks they're supposed to. Prayer is going to be utilized by the person who understands they need to pray and they get to pray. As long as you don't feel like war is happening, why would you be praying? That's why John Piper said a, a beautiful thing one time. He said, until we see that life is war, we will not know what prayer is for recognizing daily, not only in the things that feel like big spiritual battles, but in the nuance of our days, in those moments where we have smaller seeming temptations, in those moments of idleness in our schedule, in the moments of conversations that we have and all the different things in our life that we don't really step back alert and go, wait a minute, could spiritual warfare be happening right here? Okay, I need to be mindful of the truth. I need to stand in my righteousness and I need to have my faith in God. I need to have salvation on my mind. I need to have the word of God ready so that with whatever may come, we're ready 
And like Paul said, praying at all times. I think a lot of times we don't pray because we think prayer is this big, long, time-consuming thing that's really formal. And what if in a moment, in an instant, when we were tempted to just simply say, Lord, help me resist. We, 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 we resist so much of the Lord or, or we neglect so much of the Lord's help just by going, uh, th- that's not really praying. Yeah. In a moment, shooting up five words to the Lord will do more than your willpower will do in a whole day. Praying at all times. Why Jared C. Wilson said, prayer is expressed helplessness. And so much as we are not praying, we're saying, God, I've got this. We pray at all times. Let's do so now. Lord, we need you. God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would fill us and that you would speak to us, lead us and guide us and make us aware and alert and vigilant to be sensitive to the warfare that's happening around us on a daily basis. Help us see all the little snares that we don't think are snares. Help us recognize the weakness of our flesh and help us by your spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh and resist the temptations of the weakness of the flesh. But also, Lord, help us be equipped and ready, filled with your spirit, filled with your word, with all of your armor, ready to resist the enemy that he might flee and that we could, having done all to stand, stand. Help us, Lord, daily, not only in the morning, but throughout the day, be mindful of the moments of war that are happening, that we could depend on you, pray at all times, rely on your strength, not our own, to keep our own souls preserved and also to make war that more and more souls could come into your kingdom. Use us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.